Hello and welcome to Canadian Made. I'm Olivia. Each week we are going to go behind the scenes of the Canadian entertainment industry to get into the weeds of how things get made and the people who make them. This week we are joined by Karen McClellan. She is a showrunner, writer, and director. She's been involved with some truly iconic Canadian series, including Being Erica, The Next Step. In this episode, Karen talks us through her own Cinderella story into the industry, how she started from an office PA, and then became one of the showrunners to one of Canada's most successful tween shows of all time. So this is a really fun episode. She talks really practical tips on how to become a showrunner, writer, or producer at any stage and any level. I feel so confident that after this episode, you are going to completely be in love with Karen. She is so charming and so inspiring. She just really makes you believe that no matter what you think is holding you back, that you can, with hard work and determination and passion, break it into the industry and find a profession that you love. So I have to tell you, when I was preparing for this, I was going down your IMDb page, and I noticed that you were the writer of Bridal Fever, which was one of my, and you're probably going to absolutely laugh at this, but I remember growing up, I used to love the W channel. And whenever Bridal Fever came on, I always watched it. It was one of my favorite movies on (laughs) the W network. Oh, you're so kind to say that. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, that, that movie has a bit of a Cinderella story, so I'm happy to talk about it, but oh, that just warms my heart. I think Hallmark movies are, uh, they're polarizing. People either love them and they have their Hallmark Christmas movie socks and, and they, they dive right in or they love to make fun of them. So it's a, it's sometimes a weird position to be in because I think, I mean, I love a good heartwarming movie and, but the, the story that I want to share with Bridal Fever is that it was a spec feature that I wrote after film school. I probably wrote it in the early 2000s. So my goal for it, my original vision was much more along the lines of Bridesmaid, the Kirsten Wig movie. Uh, I will say this. I mean, I, I had golden shower jokes. I had a whole, it was a very raunchy version of the script that I wrote. And it came from a place where, I mean, I was in a bad mood about the fact that all of my friends uh, had moved on and got married. And I, the hopeless romantic who had always wanted the big wedding. um, It was like, the more you want it, the more you just push it away. And um, which I think is, is just a very real and universal experience for so many of us. So that was the origin of the movie. And then fast forward to, I want to say 2008, 2009, I was in LA and my agent at the time introduced me to a producer, John Eskinez, who does a lot of work with the Hallmark Channel. And the only thing my agent had to send of mine as a spec was bridal fever in its original raunchy state. And I have to give John and also uh, Liz Yost at Hallmark the credit of vision because they read this and somehow they said, 
we can make that a Hallmark movie <laughs> and we'll just, we just need a page one rewrite from you, which I had to turn around in about a, a week. And so I broke down that whole week in terms of acts because the act structure for a Hallmark movie is very different than a straight up three act classic feature um, structure, except when you go in and you look at your turning points. You do want turning points every 10 pages, which actually fits with that nine act structure. So I did that. So uh, I erased all the raunch and then it became uh, this produced movie, which, and I say the Cinderella uh, thing because, you know, it's one of those, every writer has that project and you work on it and you pour your heart into it. And sometimes it's just, it's the project that you learn all your mistakes or your beginning mistakes because we, as writers continue to make mistakes all throughout our careers, you know, it's just the craft. Um, but I put it in my drawer and I've forgotten all about it until that trip to LA. And then it became this Hallmark movie and um, played on W and I'm so thrilled that it holds up and that it's uh, an evergreen, if I may, you know, for you and, and for other people who really enjoy watching it. I mean, it was, it was a delightful experience for me, the whole making of and the director was lovely to work with. Um, and I was able to visit set to meet um, Della in person and the cast. And they were just, they were so lovely. And when you work on MOWs, you don't often go to set. Like that's not a, that's not a thing to have the writer on set. So it was lovely. It was Hallmark before Hallmark was cool too, right? Now they, they produce what, 40 movies a year. And you were part of the OG, you know? <laughs> Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it is kind of cool. And, you know, I will say it's not easy to write something fresh, like for Hallmark movies, to write a fresh, engaging Christmas movie that follows a template. And, you know, you do need that feel good ending. Um, it's, it's not a walk in the park. It's not as easy as it is to, to you know, to pick apart. Like it, it it's, it's a, it's a struggle. The struggle is real. And I think that you're right that it's kind of a polarizing thing because, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why a Hallmark channel is very polarizing, but I think also too, is that because they produce so many now, they're not always as worried about quality. And that's why I think there's a couple movies every year that really stand out because those are the ones, in my opinion, that are the most well-written or have the most interesting plot. Mm -hmm. generally and usually if some some good acting on top of that helps yeah. really bring it home <laughs> I totally agree I agree with you completely and I I am warmed to to see the evolution of the channel because I do think that uh they are moving with the times in their their own way you know they know their audience and they they are moving forward like the, there is um a progressiveness that I've seen with them which I think is really wonderful Absolutely. So I want to take it back to the begin your beginnings, um, first of all, and talk about how you got your very first job in the industry. Oh, okay. Well, do you mean my very first first job in the industry or my very first writing job in the industry? Both, actually. Your first your first job, how you got your foot in the door, and then and then when you made it as a writer, or at okay. least the beginning of the makings. <laughs> 
Okay. So my very first job, technically my very first job was an extra when I was in university. So I had a taste of the set life from that experience. And I, I went to U of T, so it is easier to get extra work when you are going to school in an area where there's filming. But my very first like legit, I want to be in this industry came after I graduated from U of T. And I knew, I knew this was my path. Like I, I didn't know exactly what my path was going to be, but I knew I loved this industry. I picked up a playback magazine back in the day when they had playback in print. And at the they back, still do. that is good to know. Um, <laughs> so at the back, they had a listing of all the productions and I basically called every production. I called each one and I said, Hey, I really want to get my foot in the door. I will work for free. I just want some experience. Please hire me. And they all said no until I got to the I really, I, I think I called 20 people, 20 companies. I, it sounds like an exaggeration, but it wasn't. And I got to that one and they were, a, they were doing a straight to home video movie. And so it was non-union. So they were very happy to have somebody like myself say, I'll work for free. I just want the experience. And note at the time I was working full-time at the gap in retail and, and bumped my hours down to part-time so that I could make rent with my roommate and you you know i i really i appreciate the struggle that the zennials and late millennials are going through with the gig economy i feel like my whole life has been gig economy so i'm not making light of it i'm just saying that you can push through it so that's what i did so i i i went to work for them as an office pa then the production coordinator was bumped up i don't know somebody left or they quit or they decided that they had enough space to give me a $50 a week honorarium and uh, <laughs> pay for my lunches. And then they bumped up the production coordinator who is Sean Hara. Um, and I mentioned his name because one, he's super amazing and lovely, but now he's, you know, this amazingly successful showrunner of animated shows. And, you know, I point that out as uh, you don't know who you're surrounding yourself with at the beginning. Like everybody who's in the industry, you know, 20 years from now, they're going to be somewhere because we're all trying to, we're all chasing after our dream. So he was bumped up and then they hired me or take his spot as production secretary. So that was really my first job and I was bitten by the bug. And from there, I, I was PA on a show called Tech War and then as it happens in the industry, you know, resumes fly around and I see this now and I need to hire an assistant. It's just like, do you know anybody good? So from there, I ended up as um, Galen Hurd was shooting an HBO movie and Galen Hurd, um, the executive producer behind Walking Dead, Terminator, Alien, Seabus. She needed a personal assistant while she was in town filming. I did that role. So that was the beginning of me being in the industry behind the camera. And after a few years, I had always wanted to write. And I did a lot of writing, you know, as a hobbyist uh, in school, like when I was a kid, I'd write short stories, high school, I'd write short stories. I remember being in drama class and, you know, trying to write a screenplay and really having my eyes opened with um, 
movies of my time. Uh, John Hughes was a big influence and I was just wowed by like, oh, wow, there's someone who's capturing, you know, an experience that I can relate to. But I didn't think that that was an avenue that was open to me because I lived in Canada and I couldn't go to UCLA. I decided I would uh, try my hand at this. I had ended a relationship, which was an impetus for me to like do something with my life. And I applied to the NSI Drama Prize with a short film script. And I got in there and I workshopped it and learned more about writing that way. And I was a script coordinator at one point. So that got me closer to scripts. And then from there, I was like, oh, I need more time to write. I know I'll, I'll look for a job in development. And that gave me great exposure to the development process, of course, for anybody, any of your listeners in development, you know that you work bonker hours, like there's no time to write. So I was just writing on the weekends. And then I applied for uh, the screenwriting program at the American Film Institute. And to my utter surprise, I was accepted with three weeks notice to get my butt down there. So it was a lot of like, it was a big rush and I didn't feel very prepared, <laughs> let's say when I, I went to screenwriting uh, film school and everybody had gone to film school before uh, this grad program. So I felt really out of my league in that respect, but not really because in order to be, to write, you have to have things to write about and you have to have life experience. This is a very long convoluted, uh, how did I get my first writing job? Um, <laughs> because it was a long road. So I went to AFI for two years. I, I did write the um, first draft of Bridal Fever after graduating from AFI. My visa ran out and um, a family member was ill. So all signs pointed to me moving back to Canada. I tempt for the government for the Ontario Municipal Affairs and housing ministry. <laughs> and I worked on my script there because that job, I don't know, it was like a, it was, it was, it was a Joe job in the government where if you're smart enough, you can do all of your work in two hours and still have time to, you know, look busy. I don't recommend that to, well, you know, everybody <laughs> makes their choices. Anyway, I, I, I did a great job for them and I still had time to write. And then I applied to the Canadian Film Center for the TV program because it took me a very long time, a lot of years, I guess, to realize AFI at that time that I was there was very feature centric and director centric. And the school, I think, has since, you know, come to see that television is really where it's at there's a golden age. There's been a golden age for at least 20 years. Um, there's very exciting things to do in TV. But when I was at AFI, they had one small workshop for TV and the rest was all features. So I, because I had spent so much time and money on my education, I was like, that's it. I'm applying to the film center. And and, and that's it. If I don't get in, I'm, I'm going to have to figure out something else with my life because this is ridiculous. I mean, you know, but anyway, I did get in and it was a wonderful experience. And it was, um, you know, the program 
simulates what it's like to be in a writer's room because uh, there were six of us working with Shelly Erickson as our showrunner and she came in with her idea for a series and we all dove into it as if we were really in a writer's room and we broke the season and we broke episodes and we broke, you know, we outlined and we wrote our episodes and at the end of, you know, a, a three month um, time period, we all had episodes and we did a table reading of these um, scripts. And the whole idea was to apply everything that we learned to our own projects and we learned more about the business of, of TV writing and what it is to be an independent, you know, go out there and be a writer. Uh, about six months later, Shelley became the showrunner of a show. She asked me if I wanted to be her script coordinator and I jumped at it. I said, absolutely, I'd love to do that. Even though I had done it 10 years previous, I share that with any of your listeners that it doesn't matter if you've done it before, it feels like a step down. It didn't feel like a step down to me. It felt like a, a great opportunity, which it turned out to be because I was able to get more real life experience working with Shelly um, for the second season. She gave me a script to write and that along with another script that I wrote for an animated show called Oliver's Adventures were my first writing credits. And Oliver's Adventures came to me around the same time that I was script coordinating um, Suzanne Chapman, a wonderful woman who uh, I knew from my development days and I you know, reconnected with when I moved back to Canada. She had created the show and said, you know, would you like a shot at this? And of course I jumped at it. I am not an animated writer by any stretch, um, but I worked with really great people who, I think if you're a writer, you can write almost anything. Everybody has their wheelhouse, that thing that they're most comfortable with, that story that they wanna tell the world that drives them. But then we all have the craft and um, the ability to write outside of those genres. So she gave me the shot and those were my first two credits, writing for Show Me Yours, Shelley Erickson show, and then writing for Oliver's Adventures. Nobody in my family outside of my uncle is in this business. And my uncle is a film editor. Post is very far away from writing. They're complimentary when you're actually in production and you're in a show, but you know, being the daughter of a bank teller and a government employee, I didn't have like the entree into the business that um, some other people do. So I guess I share that with like, if you, you, if, if you're driven enough and you, you put in the time and of course there's an element of talent that's involved, but persistence, time, drive, talent, honing the craft, um, there are these entrees. And I also want to say, you know, for, not everybody has to go to the CFC or the PSP or, you know, just pick up the phone <laughs> like I did in the very beginning. Pick up the phone, call productions, meet people, put yourself out there. Yeah, I actually, I love your story so much because I, I'm, I was in the same boat as you. I had no one, I had no connections and I was desperate to be part of the industry. And I did the exact same thing. I mean, <laughs> I emailed everyone I could and finally somebody said yes. And that's, you know, what got me my start. And ultimately actually that experience I had interning is how I got my job now. So it's, it, it all, it's like you say, it all adds up. It all builds on each other and you just, you have to say yes. And you have to be open to the opportunities, even if they don't feel like, the most glamorous at the beginning, they, the people that you meet and the experiences you have become really important. 
Absolutely. A hundred percent. And the people that you meet are the people that you're going to level up with. Um, a friend of mine, Liz Wise, she started off as an agent's assistant. And that's when I met her when I was in production and thinking, Hey, I want to, I want to do, I want to work. I want to move towards writing and fast forward 20 years She's now uh, executive vice president for the CW and you meet these people. And I think we all have to remember that we, we grow together. And so whatever eh, job you're doing now is not an eh, job. First of all, it's writing experience. Like it's something that somebody can throw into their script. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Always. Yeah. Um, and then it is, it's, it's, uh, it's widening, it's broadening your network. And so I think, you know, when I was looking you up and researching you, I was quite surprised to see that you had moved into production and producing, but hearing your experience, obviously starting in production side and hearing how much of kind of a hustler and hard worker you are, it makes complete sense to me now. So can you talk about how you made that move and maybe specifically like being Erica might be a good example of how, you know, you combined your writing and your producing? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so being Erica, I enjoy being on set. Some writers don't enjoy. And also when you're a showrunner, you don't necessarily have the time and luxury to be on set all the time. So I was very lucky. I had the chance to first work with Aaron Martin on his show called The Best Years. So he had hired me as a writer on that show. And Aaron is one of the most giving writers that I know in this industry with sharing um, sharing space with his writing staff and giving them all opportunities to be on set to learn how everything functions. Because I think as writers and especially as working writers in the industry, you need to know how your other departments are breaking down your scenes and the things that come up that can change the dynamic of a scene. I'm talking about blocking, um, small line changes, wardrobe, all of those things affect the end product. And maybe it's part me. I just have that annoying ability to spot when a picture is hanging and it's just like, like two millimeters off. And I'm just like, it bothers me. So I have that in me. And I'm also, I think I have no shame at times when it comes to telling people there's a problem. Can we please fix it? Because it's driving me nuts. On the best years, I was on set and I would notice these things. I'd be like, why did wardrobe put our lead in a pair of high heels when she's the next scene that she's in, she's going to play soccer, you know, something dumb. Right. Like, <laughs> but there was, you know, stuff like that, where it's just those little things are kind of ridiculous when you see them and you're watching TV and you're like, this doesn't make sense. Why are they doing this? Aaron knew me to be that person who was had no fear and would, would tell the director, there's a problem here, right? I don't know if we're really capturing the scene the way the scene is supposed to be. And he liked that in me and also helped empower me and not in a bad way, but empower me to say, yeah, that is your job. I do need you to speak up. I This is why I want you on set for your episode so that you can make sure that everything in the scene is being addressed that all the beats are being hit. And it's when you're on a schedule and you have to make your day and you only have two setups to get a scene, it's easy for some of these things to get missed, which is why I think 
you know, for any show that I'm a part of, I really do want that writer on set right beside the director, not to babysit the director, not because I know I don't have faith in the director, but because I know how quickly things move and how easy it is for something to get missed. And that when you get into post, unless you have it right in front of you, unless the camera captured it, you don't have it. And it just makes it that much harder. So with being Erica, um, and I, I, I love that show. It's, it's really, ugh, you know, a 30 something woman looks back on her life and all the regrets and wishes she could change them. I mean, sign me up. I totally relate to something like that. I wrote on season two, season one, I was a story editor because I come in so late in the process and they wanted me on set, Jana and Aaron. And then for season two and three, I was really on set supervising and being that, being the eyes and the ears of the showrunners, because I, I think, and I hope they would agree that I really had a sense of what they felt was really important. And we established a trust between my, my taste. And also, you know, I, they knew that I would always call them with this stuff too. If it was big enough, if it's, you know, small, I'm not going to bug them, but something substantial, I had no, no problem with calling them up and saying, Hey, this is happening on set. And how would you like me to handle it? Because here's my sense. Here's the director's sense. This is your show. Please weigh in with what you want in doing that. It really deepened my understanding of, again, how all the departments work, the DP, what they need, um, props, the director blocking. Yeah, I have a very, I'd say deep understanding of, of how they're all working together and what, what the whole, what the whole machine needs. Cause it can get very dysfunctional on set easily. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and it makes a lot of sense then with all that in mind and the experience and the particular expertise that you have, that you would be a natural fit to move into a short runner position. I guess so. I guess so. I mean, I think there's many paths to becoming a showrunner. Yeah, I guess I do. I, I do bring a broad experience with me to the whole process. All of that has helped me my writing because even even right now in the room, uh, the room that I'm working with for the PSP, we're we're in the middle of blue skying this uh, series of my creation, and you know, there, there's no network attached. There's no uh, production company attached. It's like, there's no budget. We can like daydream that it's an HBO budget. And, uh, you know, um, and we have set pieces that are in the Bahamas, but I'm, I still can't uh, divorce that production brain where I'm like, okay, but if it's going to be in the Bahamas, we really have to maximize the Bahamas. I, you know, there is that brain. And I think that's a smart thing to do because Again, when you're a showrunner, you you have to show well. You have to be able to one sell your vision, but you have to be able to sell your ability to execute on your vision. And if you have no sense of the machine and um, what it takes to make a show and how what everybody needs from you, you can end up with like a very mutinous situation. And I think it it always detracts from the creative too. Like when I hear about shows where they've just gone completely off the rails, we're talking like A-lister showrunners who are fired. And I, I'm just like, I, I, I'm not surprised. I'm really not surprised to hear of the shenanigans because 
<laughs> because there's just so little respect for the other departments. Anyway, that's my mm. rant. I'm sorry, I'm ranting. I'm on a soapbox. And so if you're, I think one of the hardest things about breaking into the industry in that way is finding financing and is the technical of how you get a project off the ground. So for those people who have, you know, a couple scripts in their back pocket or, um, you know, want to be a producer, what kind of practical tips would you give them if they're producing in Canada? Okay. If they're producing in Canada and they have their scripts in their back pocket, well, if they're, if they're like a creator, like a writer, um, which I would call myself, you know, and they have showering aspirations, let's break this down. How can they get their show made? They need to partner with um, a production company that embraces the creator, um, that really respects them, that has a good, strong vision for how they can get the show made. In 2022, I believe means being open to how can you make this a co-pro? Because Canada is such a small market. I mean, if they're a writer with a lot of uh, writing credits and writing credits like they've been a producer or co-EP, then for them to take that next leap to show running, that's that's not a big step. I mean, that's that's kind of the natural next step for them. And then that person would hire like a really strong co-EP, somebody who maybe had already had show running experience with was coming in to be like their guide. I mean, Ala, Aaron Martin and Jana Senior, uh, who Jana created being Erica, Aaron had more show running experience, even though Jana had also created Dark Oracle. And then that, I mean, that was one of the best like marriages that I've seen of show running. I mean, the best marriage of showrunners, I would say it would be myself and Rachel Schaefer because we, adore each other. We get along so well. I came in with a lot more production experience, a varied production experience. She had massive amounts of experience on the next step. And anyway, we've been a, a great partnership, but that's how that person would do it. A, a younger writer, let's say a more junior writer, how does that person break into producing their own show and being a showrunner? That person, um, with fewer writing credits, but like some great specs and they wanna go off and do it themselves. I would say to that person, it, it depends on the model that they're going for. If they're looking to make their show a TV show and they have a production company that's interested in them and a network and everything, I think there's a lot of grace to be found and humility and long-term success to be found in terms of like, partnering with a seasoned showrunner, learning from that person, um, being open to learning from that person and um, confident that their creative vision, the keeper of that creative vision and things will morph and change. And those, those situations exist. I think that's the high ideal to go for. But to make it your own show, like if you want to make it on your own, then I, I think there's a lot of uh, web series are a good way to get your voice out there. There's not a lot of money <laughs> in web series. Um, that's a great way to sort of leapfrog over some of these steps in terms of you get your voice out there. You you know, there's all sorts of different funds to access. And uh, I think, you know, you still want to have the high production value because now that's the expectation on web series. But I will say like, 
if you have access to an iPhone, like the iPhone 13, you like the camera quality on that is amazing. Like better camera quality than some of the cheap cameras that I've worked with on different shows. Like, <laughs> oh. like it is, it is like amazing camera quality. So you just, you need to find a really nimble crew. And um, that first season you can do on a shoestring because you're calling in your favors, which is what we did for Spiral. We called in a lot of favors and we were able to make the budget work that way. You know, for season two, we haven't been able to get a season two because, because you can't, because you've used up all your favors. And now you're looking at a budget that represents like the real cost of making even a web series. And it's a lot more than what we had for season one. But to go back to the original question, I would say like, look at what your creative is see what kind of funds you can access. Like as soon as you have a web series, you can approach GEM, CBC GEM, to see if they will air your web series. You could also like put it on YouTube. Like there are different, there are a lot of different platforms and then you promote the heck out of it to show that it's viable and you have eyeballs, you know, and that whole doing of it, you will gain a ton of experience as a producer um, you get a lot of experience or insight into why Netflix is so big on algorithms and eyeballs and views and everything. You will gain great insight into the funding bodies and what they're looking for. Anyway, I think with web series and some of these opportunities, you can really push yourself and, and it gives you broad experience with working with a, a team and, um, and in that respect, it gives you show running experience too. Like it really, it gives you a lot of experience of how to like be the keeper of the vision and how to communicate that vision. You, this isn't part of the question, but in talking about this, if there's a new writer who has an idea that they are like, oh, this is my passion project and I really wanna be the showrunner on this. And I, I, I really, you know, but I'm not getting anywhere with it something, another avenue that I find really intriguing, depending on what the idea is, is maybe less web series and more graphic novel. You know, if I had a genre idea, like a witch or a vampire or some sort of fantastical, you know, urban fantasy idea, I would definitely um, pursue in tandem trying to get funding to either make it a web series or make it a TV series. And if that wasn't working, I would absolutely 100% pursue graphic novel and working with a really good artist and find a publisher or even self-publish. Because again, it's like you get experience with conveying your vision, telling a story, finding an audience, but then you also have the IP that can later be optioned into a Netflix series, let's say, where they're like, yeah, we want to turn it into an animated show and you've got the IP and you can say, well, I've sold 10 million copies. I mean, you know, uh, Netflix and producers and other entities have optioned properties that have had less eyeballs, you know? So it's just, uh, that's what I would do. Mm, that's great advice. And, and I appreciated how much of a spectrum you gave for people of different, you know, experience levels, et cetera. So I have to ask you, this is one of my favorite questions to ask is what 
is your Harley Hollywood heartbreak moment, the moment in the industry where you just thought it's never going to happen for me. And then to juxtapose that with your Hollywood hit moment where you thought, wow, like I'm, I'm doing it. I, I really made something of myself. Well, I, I, yeah, I suppose one of my Hollywood heartbreak moments, oh, there've been so many, but uh, physically moving from Hollywood where I had been living for three and a half years and moving back to Canada was definitely a heartbreak moment for me. I love Canada, but I had really gone down with stars in my eyes and uh, hope in my heart. And that was, that, that is one thing that doesn't haunt me, but yeah, it's a heartbreak. It's like, it's, it's, you know, it was saying goodbye to a lover that I didn't want to say goodbye to. And then you go off and visit and come back and you're just like, you know, I love LA. I do. I love it unabashedly. It's there's, there's a lot of like downsides to LA, but I love LA, but I love Canada too. And I love our healthcare system. I love our industry here. I do. I believe in our voice. And I think for a country with like a 10th of the population, you see shows like Schitt's Creek and Letter Kenny and Being Erica and The Next Step and my God, that evergreen Degrassi and how proud we should be as a country for like, we are always hitting well above our weight. And I don't think there's any country in the world that expects so much success out of our tiny industry. And I say that because we as a collective, we're always measuring ourselves against the states where there's so many bombs, like there, I, and I mean bombs, like like terrible flops that we don't even know of. But the the uh, everybody learns from failure, and I just I wish we had the I I I I long. This wasn't the question that you asked me, but I have to go off on this tangent. That I truly hope that we have more opportunity and that there's more funding that comes in because this industry will thrive with greater opportunity and um, the grace and allowance for people to have failures, you know, for a season to fail after one or two seasons, because, you know, you keep learning and growing and it's a terrible expectation that we have collectively that we can't have failures because all those failures beget success. <laughs> my one of my agents is so fond of a baseball analogy. Like the more times you get up to the plate, the better chance you have of hitting that home run. And and that's what everybody as a writer has to remember. You just keep going up to that plate because you're not going to hit them all out of the park. But once in a while you will. Which brings me to Hollywood highlight. And I'm happy to say I feel like I have a few Hollywood highlights too. Like um, through my career, I've had Hollywood highlights. Like when I, when I worked on Alice, I think um, with Susan Nielsen, and like that was a Hollywood highlight where I was like, oh my god, I'm actually like I, I love going to work every day. It's so much fun, and I've had those peppered through my careers. You go through this fallow period, and every writer has those periods where you're like, am I ever going to work again? And then you get hired onto a project and that am I ever going to work again feels like a real Hollywood low. And then you get hired onto a project and then you're back on that high of, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm so excited. I get to apply my trade. I get to do what I love. And, and I, I get to do this with fun people, with people that I enjoy and I respect and I have a great time and that high keeps you going for a while. So it's, it's like, it's like a roller coaster. To finish off with my my last question, you've been part of so many iconic 
Canadian series, fearing Erica with the next step. So is there a particular Canadian series, maybe they're watching right now, or just one that in the past that you think is iconic and that if people haven't seen it, they have to go watch it right away. Oh, well, there's so many. Um, you don't have to pick just one. You can throw a couple yeah, names I'll, out too. I'll throw a couple. I'll throw, <laughs> I'll throw a couple. I love the Baroness Von Sketch show, which I know so many people do. I particularly love it because back in the early 2000s, there was a UK sketch show called Smack the Pony, and it was very female centric. And I watched it thinking, where's the Canadian Smack the Pony? <laughs> And years later, we have Baroness Von Sketch. And I just think it's so hilarious. Like, it's 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 really funny. And the cast are amazing. Transplant is such a good show that everybody should be watching. Family Law is so fun and everybody should be watching. But other shows, I mean, I think every tween should watch The Next Step. But yeah, um, because it's just, you know, it's the team versus the individual. And it's there's so much fun to it. It's a very long list of shows that I think everybody should watch and embrace and love about Canada. We need more funders, networks, streamers. We need more Canadian shows. We need more. Give us more, more, more. We have, we're working with so much talent here in this country. And I think that's what we need. We need more hours of Canadian TV. I think it's good. I think it's so exciting that we are really at a place where we have so much to be proud of. And it's a great time to be a Canadian in the entertainment industry, I think. Um, Absolutely. I mean, and and then there's just so much good content. Yeah, I could, I'm sorry, I'm back on my soapbox about how the industry needs to be supported more because I don't think by and large, our country appreciates how much dollars this industry brings and generates. Yeah. A hundred percent. And now it's migrating outside of Toronto and outside of Vancouver too, which is really exciting. We're starting, I mean, Alberta is doing really well, which is so great to see. And then not to mention, you know, the small towns in Ontario who their economies get propped up when a Hallmark movie comes to film there, you know, it's, it's great. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when we talk about things like the green economy and needing to shift away from you know, coal industries or mining gas, like what is the alternative? And we're all consuming stories. It just like, it gives, it gives people to um, transferable skills, like to be a production manager in the industry. It's, you have to be able to work with people and manage numbers. And I, I, I it employs a broad number of people in meaningful ways and with meaningful dollars in their pockets when they can work. Oh gosh, we haven't even started on like workable hours, but that's another topic that I feel very, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Yeah. It's, it's just, and, and I think it's part of our national identity. I think culture does so much for our national identity and, and, and it's a unifying it is unifying. More Canadian shows, more opportunity for us to all ply our trade and tell our stories and be unabashedly Canadian and put that out into the world. Because I think as a country, we have so much to be proud of. 